Michael McMullen, this is the World Snooker Tour podcast, and I'm joined today by a man who, for the next few weeks at least, is still the best player in the world under the age of 30. It's Kyron Wilson. Kyron, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Yeah, that's an interesting stat, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You hadn't thought of it like that before, so enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Now, you're from Kettering. What sort of a place was that to grow up in? Yeah, just your your sort of typical um, English town, really. Um, Yeah, sort of very proud of of where I come from. Um, We've got quite a good sporting background as well. Um, The football club, sort of, you know, for a a non-league team, had quite a fruitful history um we've had the likes of Paul Gascoigne come and grace our club he was manager um, for a while was he yeah not too long no. um yeah we had big Ron Atkinson as well he was there yeah. um and yeah a couple of other good sort of sporting up-and-coming youngsters I know you've got Charlie Hull um ladies golfer Ricky Evans dart player um you know there's a long list so um yeah proud to sort of come from Kettering. And has Kettering been your team or have you haven't defected to a Premier League side or anything? Oh no, I'm 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 a Chelsea fan. Um, oh, okay. so yeah, I enjoy watching Chelsea, but I used to be one of the ball boys for Kettering. My dad used to take me to every every league game and um yeah, I'd be one of the ball boys sort of throwing the ball back to the to the lads when it was going out. So um yeah, good memories there. One thing I've noticed whenever I've been over in England so much over the years, it seems to be accepted here. You can have your local team and then also a glory team. So I guess that's yeah. Chelsea for you. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, they're obviously, you know, past legends at Chelsea for the likes of um, Jim Franco Zola, um, Gianluca Viali when he was manager that era, sort of really attracted me to Chelsea and, um, yeah, supported him ever since, all, all through school. Now, you came on to the Snooker Tour 2010 for the first time. You actually did all right, got a few good wins early on, but the way things were set up at that time, it was just so hard for a new player to stay on. Yeah, it was, it was really difficult. I think sort of before Barry Hearn got in, it was I think it was the top 72 stayed on or something like that. Um, and I actually finished 72nd in the world. Um, so I kind of, it was when the PTC events were introduced and, you know, I didn't really fare too well in those events, um, but sort of did better in the longer format ranking events. Um, pretty much won, you know, one to two matches in every single one of those. And that was when it was a tiered system. So... Obviously, every round got tougher, but yeah, obviously, you know, that sort of showed me what it took. Um, I had to go away and work at my game, and um, yeah, obviously, where I am today, I put a lot of that down to what happened that season. I think you've always set very high standards for yourself, so when you did drop off the tour the first time, did you start to doubt yourself, or did you just find yourself more determined to get back on and do better next time? I wouldn't say that I doubted myself. I think the first year, because it took me two years to get back on the tour. Um, the first year, I thought, you know, I've sort of I've found my feet. I know what I'm doing. I know what it takes to sort of handle the pressure now. Um, and kind of went away and worked at my game. Um, I only really had the Q school to go at. And, you know, for me, the Q school is so draw dependent. Um, you know, I was playing some top, top players in that and um, just coming up short in all three. So, um yeah, unfortunately, it didn't go to plan the first year. But um, the second year, I actually spoke to my wife at the time and um, we said, you know, we're going to have to seriously look at it after this year. Um, if it doesn't go to plan, we need to look at other avenues. Um, so I kind of put all of my eggs in one basket, got a job um, working behind the bar at the snooker club as well as practicing at the same time. 
And um, yeah, thankfully I got back on tour that year. It all led up then to the Shanghai Masters in 2015. Now, I didn't plan to watch that event, Karen, because I was on honeymoon in Portugal at the time. Oh, wow. But there was Eurosport in the hotel and I found myself unable to resist it because this great story developed that you were coming through as a potential new star of the game in contention to win the title. And as so often happens when someone has their breakthrough week, there's a really big moment along the way. In your case, it was an amazing quarterfinal against Ding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just recently I've had the memories come back, you know, when you go on the social media platforms and it was showing you what happened in such and such a year. And not long ago, it was the Shanghai Masters and it was my dad's 50th birthday that week. So all of the family were out in Tenerife. Um, so, you know, I've, I've sort of, it's well documented. that I was gutted that I was missing my dad's 50th birthday, but um, there was a clip of all of them in a bar in Tenerife watching that game. And when I potted the final black to beat Ding, um, the whole Irish bar erupted of all of my family. So, yeah, that was just an amazing week for me. You got to the semi-final, obviously, off the back of that and beat Mark Allen quite comfortably. And then the final against Judd, and it goes to the last frame. And so often when you have a decider, particularly when it's someone winning their first title, they sort of stumble over the line a bit and it becomes very scrappy. Mm. Not a bit of it in your case. You got your chance and took it like you've been doing this for years. Yeah, I sort of I had it had in my mind that I was 9-7 up. So, you know, I was kind of just saying to myself, you've got three frames now, potentially, where at some point a chance is going to present itself and you are going to have to be ready to take it. Um, I didn't really feel like I got that chance um, up until nine each in the decider. And, you know, I'd kind of kept myself very calm, just waiting for that moment. And, um, yeah, like I say, when it when it came along, it was a very, very sort of 50-50 chance as well. I was queuing over the pack, sort of dropping a red in the middle. And if I don't pot the red, I, I leave Juddy's opportunity to win the match. So there was a lot of pressure on it. But, um, yeah, I managed to pot that um, and, yeah, go on to make a, a lovely 70 break to win the title. You'd always seemed like someone who had a lot of confidence that you felt you could be one of the top players. But I do remember watching you at venues later that season, particularly at the Champion of Champions, where you did well in Coventry only a few weeks after that. And you just seemed to have a different mood about you that now your belief had gone up a bit and you felt like you really belong now in these higher echelons. Yeah, obviously, you know, people sort of can tell you that, you know, you're going to win events, you're good enough to do it. But until you actually back it up and prove it to yourself... Um, you know, it's all talk. So I just off the back of winning the Shanghai Masters was full of confidence and I'd proved to myself now that, you know, what I was doing worked, I could handle the pressure and um, I could just go on and build from there. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be a one-hit wonder. I didn't want to just win the Shanghai and fade away. Um, you've seen that with players in the past. Some really good players that's happened to. They've won one ranking title and that's it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's even some great players that still haven't won ranking titles. So it does just show you how strong snooker is nowadays. Um, so, yeah, obviously, it's important to keep following it up, keep doing the right things, and um, and to keep grounded as well. You took a while then to win another ranking event, but you were getting close. I remember you came out with a great line after Ding beat you quite comfortably in Yushan. You said the journey back to the airport took longer than the match itself. I remember that was a, a very good one you came out with. Yeah. And also Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, I don't think anyone could have lived with him that day that he beat you. 9-2 in a final but was it a case that you were maybe putting a bit too much pressure on yourself trying too hard to get that title or was it just as I say that other players were playing great against you in finals um, it's probably a bit of a mixture of both I think sometimes you you sort of come off matches and you think you try and analyze it and think what could I have done differently 
Um, you know, for instance, that one against Ronnie, I don't really think I could have done that much wrong. I felt that maybe my safety game was a little bit short that day. You know, I was kind of leaving my white towards the bulk line rather than the bulk cushion. And, you know, when Ronnie's on it and you're leaving in those sort of starter reds, you know, he's going to knock them in all day long and make century after century. And unfortunately, that is what happened. We knew he'd win titles, more of them eventually, in all probability, because he was still really young at that stage anyway. And among those, I think the one that stands out perhaps is the German Masters. And I was talking to Dave Gilbert about that on here just a few weeks ago. And even though he lost, he remembers it as just a great occasion and a great final to have been part of. And of course, you probably more so because you were the one who won it. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I said it straight after. I thought it was a wonderful final. Um, you know, it, it meant a lot to me and Dave. Um, and obviously, you know, the Temperdrome is absolutely amazing in that stage. You know, you're talking... I think it's nearly 3,000 fans in that venue and um, they really create sort of a unique atmosphere. You know, they're almost clapping every shot and um, even the click of the balls sounds different in there. So, um, yeah, I remember it being a really, really good sort of um, scoring contest. I think the only thing that was missing was a century, but there was a barrage of um, 50 plus breaks. And, um, you know, I probably made the clearance of my life amongst that match to kind of turn the tide and, and go on to win the title from there. His third ranking title success to go with his triumph here in Germany earlier this season, the Paul Hunter Classic, a tournament close to his heart. He won the Shanghai Masters as well. Kyron Wilson is known as the warrior and he has shown the heart of a lion here. He is the German Masters champion for 2019. Another wonderful venue on the circuit is Alexandra Palace. And shortly before that, well, the year before it, I guess, you'd been in the Masters final there and been beaten by Mark Allen. Now, people had already warmed to you by that stage, but I think even more so with the way you conducted yourself and just how emotional you were at the end. Now, we don't often see that actually at the end of a final. So what was it, Kyron, that made you feel so emotional about the end of that Masters final? I think it was just like, you know, a culmination of sort of everything that had happened throughout the week. Um, You know, I, I played some really good snooker. I won, I think I beat Barry Hawkins in the first round, Mark Williams in the second, and um, in the semi-finals, I came back from, I think it was 5-2 down to beat Judd. And um, I think the crowd really sort of warmed to me after that game. And, um, you know, they liked to back an underdog. And obviously, I was the underdog in that match. And um, I remember playing Mark Allen um, throughout the first session. Uh, we finished four each. Um, and we went, me and, me and my coach, Barry Stark, we didn't have enough time, really, between the sessions. And... Um, we had to find some food. Um, so we went to a Pizza Express up the road and it was literally where all of the fans went into. And when I walked in, you know, I more or less got a big cheer in there and everyone was wishing me well and I really felt the expectation and not the pressure, but, um, you know, I could just sense that everybody was backing me in there and I kind of took that into the evening session and um, also had the everything that happened with the mobile phone um, where it went off three yeah. times. I think people really were impressed with how you handled that because a lot of people might have found it very hard to hide their emotions over it. But you were actually sticking up for the guy and saying, oh, don't throw him out, just get him to turn his phone off. Yeah, it was it was an elderly gentleman. And, um, you know, I remember watching it back and I think it was Dennis Taylor on the comms said, you know, he probably doesn't even know how to turn it onto <laughs> silent. Yeah. So, you know, I know how much the tickets cost and, um, you know, especially for a Masters final, it's it's a bucket list thing for a snooker fan to do. So I didn't want to see the, the fella chucked out. And, um, yeah, it's amazing, actually, the amount of people that 
remember that more than the Masters final. And actually, I Google contact me after that, and they wanted to do an advert with me based on how we misuse mobile phones. So, um, yeah, so that was quite interesting. Well, I don't know. It just, I think they went with another idea in the end. But yeah, okay. it obviously shown you how sort of big that occasion was that Google were even interested. So, wow. yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Look, this is really tough, really tough for you. So we'll keep it as as short as possible. But just listen to the crowd. They just they've enjoyed seeing you play tonight, Karen, and also throughout the week. Hard lines. You've been a wonderful, wonderful competitor. It's just really drafty in here, to be honest. <laughs> no, honest, honestly, I've, I've had an incredible week. Um, I said to my manager and my coach, if anyone was going to beat me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have loved it to have been Mark, obviously. I'm, I'm devastated. He deserves it. He's, he's been knocking on the door, so, you know, deserves it. I think sometimes, and this is something else I discussed with Dave, actually, because he had a similar scenario after his World Championship run. When players get very emotional at the end of a big match like that, it's not even so much because they've lost, but because the big adventure is yeah. over. Was that it with you? Yeah, completely. And, um, you know, we're all human and, you know, it means so much to us all. And you know, I had all my family there. Um, at the time, my manager was going through a, a tough, tough period as well, so... I really wanted to try and land it for him as well, um, Brandon Parker. So mm. that would have been really nice to have won that at the time and, and had him there. But um, yeah, I think sometimes it just does become a little bit overwhelming. And like I said, I could feel the expectation of the fans in there. And um, yeah, it was a special special occasion. And as you mentioned, Brandon, he's a real loss, isn't he? Because he did so much for the game and so much for so many players within it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I've been lucky enough to get out and see his family recently in Portugal and um yeah, just sort of reminiscing over a couple of things that have happened over the years and you know, it's it's a real, real loss to Snooker. Um, you know, we've spoke a lot about the Tempodrome and the German Masters. That was his event. So um yeah, looking forward to going back there this year. Let's talk about the most famous match probably you've ever played and the most famous frame that just about anyone's ever played against Anthony McGill. Now, we could probably do a whole hour-long podcast just about that frame alone, but such a strange frame in itself, and I imagine it was particularly surreal because of the setting and the fact that, obviously, with COVID, there was no crowd there. What are your memories of that incredible frame? Yeah, um, it was it was obviously a strange atmosphere, but... It was one that we got used to throughout the week. Um, and, you know, with COVID coming along, um, I think that sort of shown, you know, what drama snooker can can bring, even without a crowd. And I remember very late on in that frame um, when I was going up and down trying to pop the red mm. into the middle pocket, I could hear people backstage ooing and ahhing. So then all of a sudden, you know, you feel like you're just out there alone, but then you actually realise that, well, hang on, people are actually watching this. And then all of a sudden the pressure came on and you realise what the occasion is and, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, and then you're through and more tears again at the oh, end. And I suppose that was just on that occasion because the whole thing was so draining and so unique the way that frame played out. Yeah, you know, I'd, it's it's hard for me because I think a lot of the time I wear my heart on my sleeve and I think a lot of people have probably seen that um, due to the amount of crying that's happened over the years. But uh, yeah, you know, I put a lot into it. Um, you know, I want to be the best that I can. I want to make people proud and um, sometimes you just got to let it all out. And uh, yeah, you know, it was an amazing occasion for me. Um, 
and the amount of sort of support I've had off the back of that and people saying what an amazing frame of snooker that was and the viewing figures I remember were amazing for that. For well, that everyone was at home, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I remember Barry Stark, my coach, saying to me, you know, I'm really looking forward to watching you today because, you know, there's not really much else going on in the world. And I think with snooker being on at the time um, with, with COVID, it's giving people sort of the boost that they need sometimes just to have a bit of live sport. So that really hit home, sort of how lucky I was to be out there at the time as well. Great then that there was a crowd, up to a limited number anyway, for the final. What's that like, Kyron, when you wake up one morning, you come round, you rub your eyes and you think, oh, I'm playing in the World Championship final today. It must be surreal the first time it happens. Yeah, it, to be honest, it was it was a really strange um, occasion for me. Um, I actually... I didn't really get much sleep off the back of the semis with with Anthony, you know, with what happened. I found it really hard to bring myself back down to earth after that match. And unfortunately, I had a fire alarm that went off in my hotel at 6am that morning. The last thing you need. Yeah, so off the back of having about two, three hours sleep and then being woken up by a fire alarm that morning, um, I felt absolutely exhausted. Um, The first session, I was just non-existent for that final. And... um, you know, going forward, that really has taught me a lot, sort of how to deal with sort of getting to that last phase. Because I think one of the famous quotes that Stephen Hendry said was, even even though you're at the semi-finals and you're only two matches away, in terms of frames that you need to win, you're actually only halfway there. And going into the final, that really hit home because, you know, I was absolutely shattered. But you seemed to find something on the Saturday night. And even though Ronnie had got himself into a strong position, you did get yourself to a place where... you. We're back in contention there and, and perhaps could even have been in a better position at the end of Saturday's play. Yeah, um, I can't remember what the score was. I think I ended up 10-7 down, but I think I was something like 7-2 down um, and should have ended the session. Uh, I think it was 9-8. Um, I missed a sort of tricky red along the cushion, final red along the cushion. If that goes in, um, I finished the session one frame behind. And you know, going into the final day, I think Ronnie probably would have felt you know, that he should have had a stronger lead than that being 7-2 up. So, you know, maybe in terms of psychology, I would have been in a slightly stronger position. And then the final day was tough, wasn't it? Because you really needed to get off to a fast start. And once Ronnie had pulled a little further clear, there was a bit of inevitability, really, about how it was all going to finish. Yeah, um, I kicked off the the first frame with a long red. And I remember making a, a one visit, I think it was a 70 break and felt really good straight off of that. And um, Ronnie then sort of presented me with a with a clearance where I was about 40 or 50 behind. And I missed a bit of a cutback pink into the middle. And from there, I kind of really found it hard to regain my composure after that. And um, you could tell that Ronnie had, had sort of been putting the time in that morning because he looked really, really sharp. And, um, you know, showing the great champion that he is, he just sort of kicked on from there and, you know, was almost unstoppable. In a way, it's probably easier to take when it's been like that than maybe if you'd gone really close and it had been 1816, 1817, something like that. Um, I don't know, really. I think I would rather put up more of a fight um, and lose sort of closer. Um, that's just sort of who I am. I'd rather, you know, feel like I've left absolutely everything out there and sort of walk away and think, do you know what? I couldn't really have done much more from that. But yeah, looking back, I, I did feel like there was more I could have done. But you know, we, we sort of learn from those experiences and that's what I've chosen to do. That's the end. And look at Ryan Wilson in the background. He's one of the nicest lads you could ever wish to meet. He's got all his family here with him and he's got nothing to be ashamed of.
he has put up a fantastic display throughout this year's Betfred World Championship. He really has. Six world titles for Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan. Unbelievable. Just one away from Stephen Hendry's record. I did get the sense overall you were primarily just really pleased with having done so well in the World Championship. <coughs> and great to have your boys there at the finish out in the arena with you. Yeah, um, you know, it'd been tough because for the World Championships every time I probably... I dedicate, you know, four to six weeks at least of just, I feel like I go into training camp like I'm a boxer or something and, you know, I start sort of dieting, you know, um, exercising as much as I can and the hours I put in, I'm more or less doing six to eight hours every single day. So um, it was nice to then see them and have that sort of release and, you know, you, you then sort of turn into a father again because, you know, in this sport you have to be very, very selfish and I'd been selfish for the best part of six weeks, like I say. So it was lovely to see them there after the final. Now, you didn't have to wait a full year for the chance to then get back to the Crucible and try to go one better because obviously the 2020 Championship had been put back by a few months. Got to the semis and just couldn't quite put Sean away. Is it something you look back on now with regret? No, not really. Um, you know, again, I, I think it was really good for me, really positive that we got straight back into the season because it didn't give me time to dwell. Um, you know, I just cracked on straight away um, and was very consistent as a result of that. And going into the World Championships again, I felt really, really good going into it. And, you know, it felt like I was sort of getting stronger as each round went on. Um, and, yeah, obviously, Sean just played absolutely out of his skin, didn't he? Um you know, some of the balls he was potting was absolutely outrageous. So I look back on that and I think, you know, the better man won on that day. And we'll have more with Kyron in just a moment. Yes, sir. Mark Selby is still to be beaten in the Scottish Open. Only his second appearance and he has successfully retained the title. From the 6th to the 12th of December, Snooker's top stars return to Venue Cymru in Clandidno as part of the Bet Victor Home Nation Series. Selected sessions are currently at half price. Book by the 31st of October at wst.tv forward slash tickets. Let's talk now about some of the things that are said about you. And one of those over the last few years has been that maybe you don't have the same cue ball control as the other top players. Now, you're up around 300 centuries, so it seems like a strange thing to say. Why do you think people have said that about you? I, no, I would agree with it. Um, I think sort of previous years, I'd probably say, you know, probably two years ago, that, that would have sort of really been my problem. Um, but last year, you know, I'm, I, I think I hit around 70-odd centuries um, and made a new record in the Championship League. And, you know, it, I think previously my centuries were a lot of recovery pots, whereas last season and the season before, it was more about sort of pinpoint position. And, you know, I can see the changes in practice when I'm, you know, day-to-day -day playing people. And, yeah, it's definitely improved. So, for me, it's been something that's helped me. And how did you improve it? Is it just something that, through sheer practice, has got better? Or did you try to do something differently? Yeah, I, I decided to sort of make some slight modifications to my technique. Um, I've actually gone to a titanium ferrule on my cue. Um, which I feel like is sort of giving me a little bit more spin and you know less deflection with side and there's been a few players that have made that change and that's really helped me um, and yeah just doing a lot more sort of solo routines with my brother that are 
sort of more based on pinpoint position. One thing that has always been recognised as a strength of yours is your ability with the rest. And there's actually been a bit of friendly banter between you and Sean Murphy as to who is the best rest player in the world. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've had a bit of a laugh about that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it is between me and Sean. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously a lovely compliment to have and... You know, I don't know what it is. It's just I think it's probably just from playing from such a young age and not being able to reach all the way at the table and just learning. I've got quite a natural swing with the rest, and it's all about timing and feel for me. So, yeah, if I could, I'd play every single shot with the rest. <laughs> Maybe we could have a match between you and Sean, where you both only use the rest. Yeah, let's settle do it. it that way. Yeah, yeah, let's have a rest world championships. There was one tournament a couple of years ago, I think it was the Champion of Champions, where towards the end of a frame you played every single shot with the rest. And it yeah. was great. I mean, it was just good fun, bit of showboating there, but nice to see something different like that. Yeah, I, I potted, I think, something like the yellow and green um, with the rest. And Mark Allen said to me, um, you may as well just play the rest with the rest. And uh, yeah, I, I cleared up the colours from there and took the rest back to my chair. And um, unfortunately, the ref took the rest off me for the next frame. <laughs> Something else that you've talked about in the last few years that you've been working on is your fitness. And that's very much your brother's influence, isn't it? Yeah, uh, to be honest, Michael, I should be working a bit harder on my fitness. Um, like I said previously, um, the World Championships comes along and I sort of really go sort of cold turkey and you know eat very well and, and obviously exercise very well. But um, as soon as the World Championships is done, it's like blowout time and um, straight in the kebab shop and... Yeah, the rest is history. Well, Mark Williams ate kebabs all the way to the title itself in 2018. Well, that's probably so. where I'm going wrong. <laughs> There's got to be some room for that. But you are still doing a bit of that, <clears throat> still getting to the gym occasionally, or is there not time for it? Yeah, now that obviously the restrictions are easing and um, you know with COVID, it's obviously shut a lot of these places down. And I've had a gym membership um, in a lovely place um, in Kettering. And now that's back up and fully functioning. Um, I've been trying my best to get in there, you know, sort of two to three times a week. But yeah, there's a lot of hard work still to go. I've spoken to your brother a few times. And one thing I'd say about both of you, Kyron, is you're very old fashioned guys. And I mean that in a really good way, because you're both extremely well mannered and very polite all the time. Was that something that your parents really instilled in you very much growing up? Yeah, um, you know, my mum and dad have been class, um, you know, never really sort of, I don't know, done anything sort of outrageous or you know they've just always kept themselves to themselves and always been polite and you know I always believe that sort of what you give um to the world you get back so you know if you're a good person you try and do the right things and help people where you can um you know I believe in karma so yeah um I've, I've sort of been blessed with good friends all through school as well you know never done drugs never smoked never drank too much just all sort of stuck together and we're all still talking now all see each other as much as we can and yeah I've had a I've had a good childhood and to that end given that grounding that you had Kyron when there was all that talk a few years ago about a bit of rivalry between you and Judd off the table I get the sense you probably didn't really enjoy all that because that's not really your scene and I also get the feeling that it's all kind of blown over now and it was maybe perhaps a little bit overhyped by some people anyway yeah and I understand why it was because um, sometimes in sport it creates a lot of interest and obviously we were drawn together straight away in that Masters match um, in the first round and yeah, it was obviously really good sort of seeing all the media get on that and the attention that was in that first round match in particular. So um, you were okay with it all then? It didn't, it didn't bother you? Yeah, I, I don't really mind, to be honest. If, if you know, if somebody wants to 
come at me, um, you know, I'll take it on. Um, I'd rather not go down that route because, like you say, I, I don't really want to sort of have that in my life. I, I try and work hard and do the right things, but yeah, I won't. I won't sort of bow down to those sort of things. But you know, it is what it is. Judd's gone on to do some amazing things, as as we've all seen, and. Um, it's about me sort of trying to learn from that now and we actually did an exhibition together in Germany over a weekend and yeah it was it was good to sort of get to know him a little bit from that and we had a bit of banter and like I say yeah it's, it's all fine. Good stuff. Let's take on the quick fire round now Kyra. This is where I throw just a few topics, just a bit of fun. You just say anything that comes into your head, one word, one sentence, whatever. Shorter formats. No. You've done well in them. <laughs> I I prefer the I prefer the longer formats. I think um, it's a bit more of a test, um, and it's something you can ease into. Players you looked up to as a youngster: um, John Higgins and Peter Ebden. First match you remember watching on television? Oh, mine were always um, Big Break. Uh, Jim Davison used to love that program. Oh, so you were watching that maybe before you were even watching Real Tournament Snooker then? Yeah, I must admit, I didn't really, I wasn't an avid snooker watcher, but I always remember Saturday night, um, big break, my mum would sit me in front of the TV, let me watch that, and yeah, Peter Ebden with a ponytail, those, yeah, those were the days. Yeah, people wouldn't believe how big that program was actually yeah. back in the days. Players to socialise with on tour? Um, yeah, not not really many, probably Mark, Mark Joyce, um, me and my brother try and keep ourselves to ourselves. And family life? Yeah, love my family. Massive uh, family-orientated. Um, but, you know, sometimes you've got to try and put the sport first. Okay. Moving on then, as I said, you are going to be 30 in December. It's funny to think you're going to be the same age when next year's World Championship comes around as Stephen Hendry was when he won it for the last time. The thing is, back then, that was almost old for a snooker player, which mm. is amazing to think now. But nowadays, it's absolutely nothing. And as I was saying, you're younger than all the other players near the top of the ranking. So in some ways, you probably feel you're just really at the beginning of things. Yeah, as you mentioned before, um, I turned professional in 2010 and you know it took me two years to get back on there so I kind of felt like sort of 2013 that's sort of where I've really gone on to become an actual professional snooker player so sort of in hindsight you know seven eight years as a professional isn't a massive amount of time and I feel like if you look at my stats I'm always improving year on year so um, I think if you can always better yourself each year and you know, not really focus on what's going on around you, then, you know, you're going in the right direction. And some people might look at that and say, oh, well, obviously he's going to take over in a few years because all these guys are getting older. But they're still really good, aren't they? They're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, and, you know, you can't be complacent. There's lots of young talent coming through. There's lots of great Chinese players coming through. And, you know, these people are only going to get better and stronger. And I'm looking at the likes of John Higgins, who's lost so much weight, and you're thinking... Like, you know, he wants it. And I, I love seeing that in people. And, you know, he's obviously going nowhere anytime soon. Mm. Can you be the best in the world, Kyron? Can you be number one someday? That's the that's the aim. I'd, I'd like to think so. And what do you feel you need to do? If you keep going on the path you're on, do you think that can get you there? Or is there some way you feel you need to improve to take that big step? There's always lots of ways that you can look at improving. Um, you know, health and fitness is obviously a big one. But I believe it's sort of not about being stagnant. Um, if you can look for something each year to maybe take your focus away and improve on that one thing, um, that's massive. But don't fill your boxes with too many things. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Kyron. Thanks very much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast today. and All the best for the season ahead. Thanks, Michael. Good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thank you. Cheers, mate. 
Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's James Cahill, whose astonishing record of wins over top players includes beating Ronnie O'Sullivan in the first round of the World Championship in 2019. He'll be looking back on what that all meant and also explaining why it isn't so easy to follow up on such big results. You hear everyone say it, oh, you know, in, in the commentators and stuff, oh, it'd be interesting to see how he follows this game up or he follows that up and you get dragged into all that and you think, well, what happens if you go out and you play whoever next game you don't get a shot is it is it you know because he's played so well have I not followed that up or has he just played really well I think it's a lot of mindset and I think now as I say I'm hopefully feel like I'm maturing and, and getting to a place where I can maybe progress so that's coming up next time on the world snooker tour podcast until then thanks so much for listening and goodbye